Peter, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Some of you may have heard this. Um, Rhode Island is, is going to have its own professional soccer team starting in 2024. It's called Rhode Island FC. Um, now, I'm probably unreasonably excited about this, um, but it's because it seems like we've always played little brother to Massachusetts with that state serving as home for all our sports teams. Now we get a team of our own. The team is having open tryouts on Saturday, November 11th. Now I, I pointed this out to Sarah and I joked by saying, should I go and try out? Um, the only problem is it seemed that she missed the jokes though, since she responded by saying, you're not serious, are you? I'm not sure what that says about me, that she thought I might be serious. Um, maybe she just knows that I'm a dreamer that occasionally loses touch with the reality. Um, but if I, I was really going to do it, um, I'd have to start training immediately. Um, if I just rolled out of bed onto the field, I'd completely embarrass myself. Now, of course, the truth is, is that I could train from sunrise to sundown, and I wouldn't be able to compete with the talent that will be out there. But the point that I'm, I'm getting at here is, is that you have to be ready for a tryout if you'll have any shot of making the team. Now, of course, making the team is of no concern of mine. You're not going to find me out there on November 11th. And my life will go on all the same. But let's pretend. Let's pretend that having a career in soccer was your dream. And that this was your one 
and only chance. The stakes are you either make the team or you spend the rest of your life doing some lousy job you despise. Wouldn't you take every measure you could to succeed? The opportunity of a lifetime is before you, but it could just slip through your fingers if you're not ready. We are utterly serious about these kinds of episodes in life. Strangely, we can be so unserious about fundamental matters no less real. Just stop and look around. While millions of dusty, empty planets inhabit the cosmos, this Earth teems with life. You find much more than the mere microorganisms that uh, all the space programs search for. You find plant life of countless variety, animal life of all shapes and sizes. And you find us here, these strange bipods who have developed a world within a world. A world of things, language, culture. If you can just stop for a second and step back, can't you see that this is all very weird? We don't think about this mystery enough. We shrug off the very existence of our lives. Instead, we get all wrapped up in education, careers, retirement, schedules, bills, and on and on. Our program is occasionally interrupted by some death that gets us thinking about these fundamental things. But we then quickly return to our regularly scheduled program until we ourselves die. And maybe it makes sense to keep ourselves preoccupied if that's that. If there's, if there's nothing more to be had. And secular society will try to convince you of that. That this world is all just some accident. That you really need to get back to work. But the honest person knows that this is absurd. This doesn't just happen. There is a creator and this creator has also revealed himself to be the savior of humanity, Jesus Christ. He holds out to us a new life, freed from the corruption of sin and evil, a life that is delivered from the reign of death. This is the opportunity not only of a lifetime, but of all eternity. Will you take it? Or will you let it slip through your hands? It matters far more than any soccer tryout or anything else that you might lose or gain in this world. Peter closes his letter by setting this before us. He's speaking to people who already believe, but his words are no less relevant to anyone who has not believed in Jesus. Both Old and New Testaments testify that there is a day coming 
a day of judgment. The day of the Lord, which is the return of Jesus Christ. And this is what he speaks of beginning in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now he's already spoken in this chapter of how there's going to be a coming destruction. He draws a parallel with the flood of Noah. Here we have a very vivid image of its fiery nature. It made me kind of think of actually a couple, I'm not sure if it was last year or a couple years ago, where you resealed the parking lot and you know cracks form in a parking lot and grass pops up. And someone had a torch and was going through and burning down all the grass so that it could be resealed and, and filled in. That's kind of what's going to happen to this earth. It's going to be cleansed by fire. And there's something about this approaching destruction, this approaching judgment that really catches our attention in that it's something that we can't really anticipate aside from always being ready. And Peter hammers home that, that reality by saying that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Now, of course, no one knows when a thief is, is going to come. It's unexpected. And so if you're going to be prepared for a thief, you've got to always be ready. And this is exactly what Jesus says. And we've got to remember here, remember, Peter was with Jesus. And so in many ways, he's just re-articulating the things that he has heard from Jesus himself. So in Luke 12, verses 39 through 40, Jesus, in talking about this return, he's been talking about an owner of a household coming back, finding his servants ready. He also says this in verses 39 through 40, If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. It's a call to always be ready for the coming of that day. And I think a lot of Christians have been like, okay, we can't know the day or the hour, and so, okay, that's good. We recognize that as a, as a fact, that we just can't know that. But they haven't then taken that reality as something as, that should be a driving force behind the way that they live their life. If we do not know when Jesus is returning then we should always be prepared for his return. We should always be living ready. We should not be apathetic about that reality at all. And so when you take those two things together, the fact that the coming of Jesus Christ is going to be like a thief. You don't know when it's coming. And when he comes, he's, the world is going to be cleansed by fire. You bring those, things, those two things together, Peter tells us, the implications that ought to have for our lives. In verse 11, he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now the implication here of what Peter is saying is that when this destruction comes, only that which is holy is going to remain. And 
And so we ought to be the holy people that God has saved us to be. That's his very purpose. This is something that Peter brings, has already brought out uh, in his earlier letter, in 1 Peter 1 and in verses 13 through 16. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who, call, who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now I think when some of us hear that, that we're supposed to be found as a holy people when Christ returns, it can make us really anxious, maybe. In the sense that you think, well, I don't feel like I'm very holy. I know I'm not perfect. I know I have all these flaws. Is Peter saying here that I've got to work myself up to be a perfect person in order to be saved? Kind of makes it, it can seem like that on the surface. But we have to remember the full testimony of Scripture. And the full testimony of, of Peter. We, looking at several passages, we're reminded that salvation comes through faith, not, not by works. In 1 Peter 1, verses 8 through 9, he says, Though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See that connection that he makes there between faith and salvation. It's by faith that we are saved. And, and this is something that Paul really drives home, especially in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And I urge you to remember this passage. You know, lots of people remember John 3:16. Also remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, because it really it really helps us understand what it means to be saved. Paul says this, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul's saying salvation is a gift that we just receive by faith. It's not something you earn. But then he, and you have to remember verse 10 here, because it's so crucial for filling out our understanding. He says, then he says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't it interesting that Paul has brought all these things together? It seems like in verse 8 and 9, he's like, don't even think about works. You're not saved by works. But then in the next verse 10, he's, he, he goes on talking about how we've been saved for good works. What he's trying to explain to us is you're not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And it's the work of Christ in you that brings forth that fruit in your life. So yes, you do receive Jesus as a gift, but when you receive Jesus Christ, he does not leave you unchanged. He utterly transforms you. This is the work of God in us, and, it, and it's preparing us for that day of, of his return. It, it's a work that's going to be, in fact, completed on the day of Christ's Return. In Philippians 1, verses 4 through 6 and 9 through 11, Paul says this. 
In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God's already been working in you through Jesus Christ today as you've put your faith in him. And that's a work that begins today and goes on to the day of his return. And then Paul says this in verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So notice there how Paul's using kind of this language of, of a tree bringing forth fruit, which is kind of recalling what Jesus says in, in John 15 about how he's the true vine and we're the branches, and we only bear fruit if we're attached to him. The righteousness that we have in our lives, the fruit of righteousness, only comes through Jesus Christ. It's not something that you yourself produce. So even if you've, you know, you've come to faith, you've gone to church, you've put your faith in Jesus, and now you're a much better person than you once were, you don't get to claim that as like, well, gee whiz, look at me. You know, like, I'm, I'm so good. That's not you. That's Jesus. That's how Jesus has transformed you. And it's that kind of transformation that Peter's saying we ought to press into. It's almost like you think about how there's a transcontinental railroad and the two were meeting each other in the middle. It's like, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Is Christ has begun this work in us, and the kingdom of God is coming, and, and we meet each other in the middle there. But it's all Christ's work. It's not us. And this is, this is just part and parcel of the, the necessary final transformation that, that God intends to bring about, because we won't be perfected in this life. We're awaiting our complete transformation on that day. He says in, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 52, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all, will all be changed. Now, maybe it's easy to miss what he's saying here. What he's saying here is not everyone's going to die but all of us are going to be changed. All of us are going to be transformed. So when Jesus returns, the dead are going to be raised. Some of us are going to still be alive, but all of us are going to be changed. And then, again, kind of getting to what Peter was saying about his appearance coming like a thief. He says, In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So God has begun changing you today. He's going to change you ultimately and finally on that day when Jesus returns. And so Peter says, this is something that we should look forward to. In verse 12 he says, this is something we should look forward to. And something that we ought to hasten. He says, "Speed, we ought to speed its coming. Which is, again, kind of a a funny notion, I think, to us, but we talked about it last week, how in Acts 3, in verses 19 through 20, how Peter talked about 
um, in his sermon. He said, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And so he's indicating there that the return of Christ was conditioned on the repentance that needed to be fulfilled. And this is what Jesus talks about. He says the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And then once that has been accomplished, once those who have repented, who need to repent, who God has called and who will repent, have repented, then Jesus is going to return. And so when we think about speeding the return of Christ, it's not as though we can make Jesus come here any sooner than he's, he's going to come, but it's that we're going hand in hand with God's plan and his call and his purpose for our life, which is that we would repent and that we would call others to repentance. We can almost think of God's... There's an analogy here, I think, between kind of God's wisdom and foreknowledge and kind of like a car's GPS. I don't know about you, but sometimes... Well, last week I mentioned I run late to things a lot of the time. And so I'll punch it into the GPS and I need to be somewhere at 10. And it's like, what do you mean 10.02? Like, I should be able to get there at 10. And no matter what I do, you know, I, like, I'm urgent. Like, I'm trying to get there. And it's just I always get there at 10.02. The GPS knows all the bends and turns and the traffic. I think in the same way, like, God knows the complete course of history. He knows what you and I are going to do. And, of course, he has his own interventions in all of that. And so he knows exactly when Christ is going to return. And yet, like the person in the car driving, like we, do ha- we are included in that plan. So it's difficult to understand, but I think that kind of underscores kind of the, actually the attitude that we ought to have towards Christ's return. Like, just as you're in the car and you know, like, the time on the GPS is pretty much the time that you're going to get there. You're still urgent to get to your destination. And that's the sort of urgency that we ought to have for the return of Christ, for the day of his return. We ought to approach things with that sort of urgency. It's an urgency without anxiety. We're not anxious about it. It's an urgency that comes from eagerness. It's an urgency for not for the destruction that's going to come, but for the restoration that goes hand in hand with that. Um, You think about that parking lot I talked about earlier. We didn't just burn up the grass and the cracks. The grass was burned up in the cracks in order that the cracks might be filled. And this is what God is coming to do. He's He's coming to fill in the cracks. Even more than that, to put in a whole new parking lot, really but to bring us a new world, to completely restore things. And this is what Peter says in verse 13. He says, In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's so easy for us, I think, to forget that hope. So often we think about the Christian hope as just being, like, I die and I go to heaven, and I'm at peace. And it's true that Christians do enjoy peace you know, at the time of their death, but they enjoy that peace also because they have the hope of this coming resurrection. And with that resurrection comes a new creation. 
And when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have a vision of what that, that new world is going to look like. In Isaiah 65, 17, God testifies, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Now, I don't think that means that we won't literally be able to remember anything that transpired in the past, but I, I almost imagine it will almost be like dreamlike because there's just going to be an entirely new reality that's going to be introduced. And we see just how radically different, even if continuous, how radically different that reality is. And in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, uh, the apostle John testifies. He says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Revelation, you'll recall that what John is witnessing here is this, the city of the heavenly, heavenly Jerusalem has descended upon earth. So you have heaven coming to earth and God making his home with mankind on earth. And so, because God is here, everything is different. And because God is here, there is no place where evil is welcome. So in verse 27, he says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, speaking of that city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Peter wants us to use our anticipation of this new world that is approaching to press into the transformation of our lives today. He already told the believers they should be holy, and he doubles down on this in verse 14. He says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now again, being found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him is not something that we bring about by our own powers. It's not through ourselves. It's through Jesus. But what he's calling us to is a life that has lived in harmony with our Savior. He's assuming that the people that he's speaking to here have already put their faith in Jesus, and now he's calling us to live in harmony with Jesus. That not only have we been covered by Jesus so that we are forgiven, but that he is in fact cleansing us of our sinfulness. Not just the past sins, but our actual sinfulness. Now, you know, there's many people that have not believed in, in Jesus. And, and so on that day, they won't, they, they won't be found spotless. But there's also people who call themselves Christians, who sit in pews, who actually are not Christians. And so I think, and, and as human beings, like we can't really make that judgment. Only God knows. But I think what Paul, what Peter's doing here is this call, kind of saying, hey, like, pay attention. Like you say you've put your faith in Christ. Great. If you've put your faith in Christ, then you should be seeing this fruit in your life. It's kind of a wake-up call. You know, Jesus is coming back. How is he going to find you? Are you, in fact, in right relationship with God? Have you, in fact, 
put your faith in Jesus. Now, we already, earlier Peter talked about how God, God's delay in, in having Christ return has been an act of mercy so that people can have time to respond. And Peter reiterates this again in verse 15. He says, the Lord's patience means salvation. The Lord is giving us time so that those who haven't heard can put their faith in Jesus, so that maybe those who their whole life have heard about Jesus but haven't actually put their faith in Him can actually put, will actually put their faith in Him. So this time that we have is mercy from God. Now, Peter's saying that we ought to be prepared, be found spotless, blameless, all this. He's saying we ought to be ready for Christ's return, but he's, saying, he's not saying that we're to be ready in order because Jesus needs something from us. In fact, he's just calling us to be ready so that we can receive the blessings of God when Christ returns. And Jesus talks about this. This is really interesting. So this is, this is the same passage in which, Peter, in which Jesus was talking about how his return was going to be like a thief in the night. He says this earlier in the passage. He says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Okay, all this... Makes sense. Servants have to be ready. Servants have to be ready to serve, you think. Take care of the master when he comes home. But then Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants who masters find them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. So the, ma- is, the master has called his servants to take care of the house while he's away. And when he comes ho- home, he's not saying, okay, now go do this and that and all these things. No, when he comes home, he actually offers them their reward. He himself serves them and takes care of them. What an upside-down picture. The story here takes a real left turn, but that's... That's the nature of our relationship with God. God has saved us not because he needs us, but because he loves us and wants to show his kindness to us. Now, Peter says that in speaking of this, of this patience, of, this, of the Lord's patience, that Paul has spoken similarly about this. And so in verse 16, he kind of, as an, as an aside, offers some comments about how pe- other people have responded to Paul's writing. It's interesting that he notes that Paul's writing is among the other scriptures. So here we have Peter testifying that the letters of Paul are in fact scripture, that they are divinely inspired. So it's not as though only the Old Testament is inspired. And Peter observes that Paul's writing can be hard to understand, which I'm sure some of you have found at times when you're studying Paul's letters. And he says, because of some of the complexity involved in his writing, some people have taken his words and twisted them. And he says that these people have done this because they are ignorant 
an unstable people. And so they're just using these, the, Paul's words basically to their own benefit, and it's going to lead to their destruction. And his point in, point in saying all this is that he wants his readers to be on guard, to be wary yet again of those people that are going to try to lead them astray. Chapter 2 was pretty much all about that, you might remember. is all about people that are trying to twist God's word, lead people astray. And he's really just reiterating what Jesus himself says in Mark 13, verses 22 through 23. He says, for, Jesus says, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. And Peter is telling them to be on guard in order that they would not fall from their secure position. Because if they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, then they do have a secure position for that day of judgment. Now, there may be some people who externally on the surface, you might think, oh, they are a Christian, who on that day will be revealed that they were not, in fact, even though they, you know, maybe they went to church, they did a few good things, but they never, in fact, put their faith in Christ, and they had a bunch of skeletons in their closet. And, um, and so this is why earlier, you know, at the beginning of this letter, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, if we have been called, if we have been saved in Jesus Christ, then our lives should be marked by the fruits of righteousness. And so we should always be desiring that those fruits would be manifested in our life. If we don't care about what God cares about, if we're not passionate about righteousness, if, if we just think that, you know, we've just kind of taken Jesus as a free, free meal ticket and we're like, okay, see you later, then we've really misunderstood what Jesus has come to do. That he hasn't just come to save us from destruction, but he's saved us to be the children of God. And so Peter says in, in verse 18, he urges us by saying, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you're in this secure position. Don't stop growing. Keep moving forward. Grow in the grace and knowledge that we've gained in Jesus. And this, I mean, this is kind of indicated by the fact that he uses the word grace. All of this, again, is, is from God. You don't grow without God. You don't grow without Jesus. This is why Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. In his first letter, in 1 Peter 2, Peter says that like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So it's like you've been saved. You put your faith in Jesus. Yeah, you've got all these you know, areas of weakness and sin that you're wrestling with. But you don't stay where you start out at. 
You've been saved in order to grow up in the salvation that you've received in Jesus. And there should be some encouragement in this, I think, because I've heard people say before, I can't go to church because I'm just not good enough. Or even Christians, once they've come to, you know, they, they have faith, they've even been in the church for a while, they say, well, I couldn't do this or that because I'm just not good enough. And that's kind of looking at things kind of from the wrong vantage point because it's not by your own goodness that you are qualified to do something. It's not by your own goodness that you're saved. It's, it's God and Jesus Christ who saves us and qualifies us for what he calls us to do. Paul talks about this in Colossians 1, verses 9-12. through 12. He says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So again, saying very much the same thing that Peter is saying. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of life. Notice there, it says, it's the Father who qualifies us. God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. You don't have to bring a resume when you come to the church. God's going to build you up and grow you up into who he wants you to be. And this just makes it utterly clear that all the glory belongs to God. And so it's fitting that Peter ends his letter on this note. He says, To him be glory both now and forever. This is the anthem of the Christian life. I'm not saying glory to Tom. You're not saying glory to Josh or glory to Lynn or, you know, you're not saying glory to me. You're saying glory to God because of what he's done in me and what he's doing in the body of Christ. And the fullness of God's glory is going to be revealed when Jesus returns. That day is approaching. And God has set before us life and death. We can believe in Jesus, give our lives to him, and be raised from the dead, never to die again. Or, we can cling to our lives, live for the moment, and lose everlasting life on the day of judgment. It's honestly difficult to imagine that day. It certainly seems strange. But that really means nothing when you remember how strange it is that we even exist. That all this around us exists. If this strange world exists, it's hardly strange that God can bring a new earth into existence. Now most of you in here are adults. You know what you can squeeze out of this world, what you can get out of it. And if you're honest, you'd say, it's not much. Is hardship speckled with momentary happiness? 
Don't you want something more? Doesn't your heart know there's something more? This is what C.S. Lewis says to your experience. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The world that you desire is the world that Jesus is bringing. You can live in that world forever. All you need to do is pledge yourself to Jesus. He sacrificed himself to offer forgiveness and resurrection life to you as a free gift. And to accept it, all you need to do is believe. Put your trust in him, not in yourself, not in this world. Trust in Jesus and let him change you for the world to come. That's what it means to be ready. doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that your heart is aligning with the heart of Jesus. You want what he wants. Jesus is winning millions across this world to his side. People of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Hearts aligning for the kingdom of God to be revealed on earth. So press onward. The king is coming. Let us pray. Dear Father, We pray that you would impress upon us the reality of the day which is to come, the day of Christ's return, in which everything's going to be laid bare. On that day, we're going to see what was really important and what was unimportant. We'll see what our lives were really made out of, Father. And Father, we confess that We have nothing to offer of our own making that could stand that fire, that could last until eternity. But Father, we do believe that by your Son, we can see that new world which is to come. Because of his perfection, Father, we believe that we can be forgiven and we can be restored and we can be made into the holy people that you desire us to be. And so, Father, as we look forward to that day and the new world that is to come, we pray that you would transform us day by day and that we would press onward with eagerness, with urgency towards the day of Christ's return so that when he does return, he would find us ready, ready and waiting, Not that we would serve Him or meet His needs, Father, but so that we might receive the blessings that He wants to offer to us. Father, help us to keep our priorities straight and just not get distracted by the things around us. Help us to cut through the noise 
and fix our eyes on Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us this Sunday as we begin our sermon series looking at the Bible's account of Abraham. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.